Oh, Rajanaka, hope this finds you well. Today's Diwali, or as we prefer to say in Tamil, Dipavali. It is, as the word itself tells us, a garland, a ray of light, a celebration of light, the Deepa. Now, Deepa not only means light, it means lamp or lantern. And so it refers not only to the light, but that which sources and sustains the light. It refers to the place inside us that burns and kindles and illumines the heart, the mind, the core of ourselves. And this is the festival in which we celebrate as much that resource of our own light and that we are that lamp. Lamps all over India tonight will not so much cast out darkness as remind us that darkness does not contend with light. At best, it contends with itself because it is itself an absence. But we, we are a light. We are a presence. The purpose of that light is to be light, for the darkness can do nothing without our permission, our consent, or our participation. We may choose to enter those places inside, those darker places. Let's not forget to bring a torch. So today, let's talk about what it means to be that inner light, to make ourselves burn more brightly when the days seem short and the nights far too long. Deepavali, like the fest of Samhain for the Celts or Halloween in our own culture, is a way of inviting us to renewal. It's a pushback. Days are getting shorter. We're moving from light to darkness from plenty to scarcity, from warmth to winter. And yet the insistence, the demand, is that the light will not be extinguished, that we will cast light ahead. We will not be enveloped in a darkness. We will move through this time undaunted by what that darkness might bring. It's sometimes hard to know what to say these days. There are many good reasons to keep our feelings and our ideas to ourselves. We can use that darkness to shelter us. I suppose that's a form of light. There are perils from family to the workplace if we allow those feelings to be expressed too much light. I work in a place that's purported to be devoted to the great American experiment, and above all, to the contest of ideas brought into shared conversation and without the threat of violence. But free speech is like light. It doesn't ever mean you get to say anything you want or burn as brightly as you feel just because you want to. I think today we feel like that experiment, that that project of liberty that freedom to speak and to be ourselves is being abused. It's being overtaken by a certain darkness. If the light of that free speech is, in fact, enshrined in the law, where it's difficult to prove liable in the court, it's apparently okay for some, or at least for one, to defame a judge, cast aspersions, perhaps incite violence, all of which will be tolerated if you have enough power or a mob that will vote for you. It's important to refuse to let the darkness be the light. 
Meanwhile, at the university this week, there were demonstrations and counter-demonstrations, guidelines published by the administration regarding student behavior and a palpable agitation and unease and, and worry. The war in the Middle East has touched everyone. So what to do? What are we to think of a burning world? We need to think out loud, even when it's hard and discomforting and we're not at all certain about what we really do think or how we do feel or what we want to do. It's risky not only because it's hard to say what we mean, but because it's human to evolve your ideas, to feel conflicted, or to be just confused. It's also human to hold more than one thought at the same time. Those contradictions and paradoxes, those ways in which we find ourselves holding what appear to be irreconcilable positions, those aren't failures. Those are forms of light. Those are islands of complexity in which we receive and offer what more there is to be human because we are that form of light that sustains and burns a more complex reality because we are capable of such brilliance. It's better when we try to articulate difficult matters. I tell students that they don't really know what they're thinking or feeling until they try to express it, because words matter, and so do so many forms of human expression. I've urged them all maybe become journal keepers. This is such an important time in history. They may want to remember, put down before them right now, what they're thinking and feeling, so that it becomes a beacon of the future. I tell them that a journal doesn't have to be formal or even complete sentences. But if we take a moment, seize a moment, when an idea or an impression is fresh, or after you've had some time to think about it, just write it down, even a few words. Maybe draw, if that's what feels better. But give your voice voice. Take what is inside out. When we do that, at least two things will happen. First, as my mother used to say, better out than in. Whether it's love or toxicity, get it out there and you'll feel better for it. Keeping things bottled up invites the demons who feed on the shadow. It creates an absence in the heart. Absence is darkness. But when you give your private thoughts and feelings light in the world, the shadow illumines itself and whatever is hidden is less dark. And second, we don't really know what we know until we offer it, until we put it out there in front of ourselves. Turn the hidden into a form of grace, an offering to yourself. At least journal inside your heart. If you find out while you're doing this that you're really upset or you're in a hurtful or even in a dangerous place, you'll have created for yourself a chance for reflection, an opportunity to cool off, gain some perspective, maybe reach out and share. Up my teacher used to say that we must learn how not to fear the facts, 
even when those things are painful or disquieting. Now, an important practice in yoga here is captured by the word vairagya. Vairagya appears in any number of early sources, and it sometimes is translated as disinterest or aversion. The Vedantins, sometimes the classical yogis, tell us that vairagya is indifference from worldly desires. It even suggests feelings of disgust or distaste so that we turn away. But those understandings only belong to those certain yoga traditions hell-bent on teaching us, in some ways, to turn away from the world to find what's most important, or to treat the everyday facts as if they are mere transient hindrances to a so-called higher path that takes you to liberation. But for Rapa, treating the hard facts and taking to heart the facts of the world couldn't be a mere disturbance or disadvantage. We can understand vairagya in an entirely different way. Vairagya actually means something like a change or a loss of color. Now, in medicine, that's not such a good thing. But what Uppa was suggesting here was that we can consider changing how we color our inner landscape. Or even to think of this practice as a verb. That is, to consider how we choose to color and hue and tone and value our feelings, our thoughts. How do we wish to cast a complexion? How shall we texture our thoughts and feelings? How shall we color this world? This also means that we can tone down the venom, treat the fever, let the feelings rise to warmth, cool the incandescence. Vairaga keeps your tone cool when things are too hot. It brings warmth to frigid indifference. It allows you to come nearer to what's on offer, even if it's off-putting, painful, dismaying, dispiriting. Vairagya treats the facts not as our adversary, but as our human condition. And the ways we receive and accept, acquire, secure, and gather ourselves together is the beginning of a more productive engagement. And that's what yoga is about. Sometimes vairagya means keeping your cool, and other times it means changing your color. But it's not itself an end. It's only an important method that allows us to see ourselves, to see the light before us, to receive what's on offer, like it or not. Vairagya teaches us how to deal, not what to think or what to feel. Now, my students in these past few very troubled weeks have asked me for my personal opinions, perhaps because our department teaches the world's religions, perhaps just because they wanted to talk to someone. I see them hurting, confused, animated, worried about what's going on and all that's causing anxieties, including just trying to get, get on with some or staying the course of their student lives. It's not fashionable to say this, but as I try to model as far as I can how to address these complexities of feelings. Is this an island of refuge? Is this a resource of illumination? Is this a place where we gather and offer vociferously with hearts open and minds committed to that enduring power of freedom, the freedom to speak 
from our souls. All of those things are part of their student lives. So it's much more important, I say, than offering an opinion, much less attempting to influence theirs, than it is, I think, to address the complexity. So let me sort this out a bit. I think what's at stake is an important distinction. And I think a lot of college professors are putting themselves in untenable positions, or so says the newspaper, offering too many personal opinions, not enough modeling of what could be an illuminative process. I think of the matter less in terms of offering a viewpoint than positioning oneself to see, to become a beacon. One of the most important boundaries I maintain to define my college professor self is that I teach as if and also from critical disposition. I do my best to explain this difference because it's the way of learning to learn. Learning as if involves the claim to an audacious humanism. It requires the effort to imagine, to create empathy as part of our method, and to be charitable to views or behaviors that are not our own. As Zappo once put it, it is to live a life you have never lived and are unlikely to live. And here unlikely meant, you know everyone has their own experience and it's not yours. We might be worlds, cultures, religions, generations apart, but we are human. So this first project of perceptibility, this first as if, warrants seriousness and recursive humility. Humility so important that it's reintroduced into every other thought as humility as audacious as the audacity to imagine another's life and to reach and reach into a wellspring of the heart for more receptivity. Just when you think there's no more room, the heart will make room to listen, to hold and to hear, to apprehend, admit, and collect. The heart is never a zero sum, even though when the mind is topped off and can barely manage to think. We're going to need as much intellectual imagination as we do emotional responsiveness. And what is more audacious, risky, brazen, and presumptive? What's more audacious than this effort to try to understand another's experience? This, this is the humanist task. And this was at the core of my Uppas teaching of auspicious wisdom. We know we can never somehow put aside our encultured experience, which includes all the hidden biases and inclinations that inform us with or without our awareness. And at the same time, we're impelled by critical estimate to create frames of reference, to create models of argument, to act in good faith and attend to the heart. We are not bystanders. We are not passive recipients of this world. We must not abdicate salience or reason. Significance grows when we are willing to task ourselves to well-defined commitments, committed as much to compassion as we are to incisive thinking. The one is not at odds with the other. They are necessary complements. We can be pungent, unsparing to the truth, pointed and rigorous, only when we are equal parts pliant, tender, tractable, even pacific.
No one has ever said this was going to be easy. So instead of telling my students what to think, or even what I think, I try to impress upon them their power to create these capacities, how to expand and make room for more complexity, how to gain range and scope, measure and expanse, how to imagine the as if, what it's like to think and feel as another does, the audacious task of empathy, and at the same time, to sustain a critical and partisan awareness. Most of all, we must have that inner candor, fair and frank, guileless desire to address our own partisan heart because we do prefer, we do feel obliged and take sides. We are pressured to take and feel influences and feelings that cause us convulsions, entanglements, and inner confusion. We can be honest about how we're not always above board or forthright because it can be too painful to speak with that candor. We're just not sure, but that's part of the journey, a journey to a more trusting and trustworthy life. There are people who will want none of this for whatever reasons they do. People who have forgotten or forsaken or never learned how to share more of our shared humanity. Some who really do wish to see the world burn. What we do with ourselves, because there are such people, that is what will shape our hearts and shape our future. So I'm telling the students that as they take up their activism, to remember that one can be convicted, truly committed, and at once just as sober, tempered, and careful to care. When we are all one thing and not the other, we rarely learn more. It's like being too certain because there is such a thing as being too certain. And that causes us more impulse and reaction than determined attention or constructive reflection. Are we still learning to learn? Or have we decided we already know and there is nothing more? Every time we think there's nothing more, we've given up on the premise of our humanity. We are unfinished beings. Best not in search of completion, but of possibility. This is no airy fairy claim. This is no philosopher's whim. This is how we come to deserve our opinions and make our arguments, because we are always in a process of learning how to learn. A student this week once again said to me that she was sure I was a Buddhist until I started to teach the Hindus, and now she doesn't know what I think. I asked her what she thought about that. She said, well, you give everybody their best case. You take apart their strengths and their weaknesses as if you're both with them and opposed to them. Well, I told her, you know, actually, I have very strong opinions and I am deeply partisan. I'm partisan about religion, politics, love, you name it. I take sides. But that making judgments and thinking we don't is plain nonsense isn't about taking a side. It's about testing every thesis. It's about staying in the experiment. It's about willing to be persuaded and unpersuaded. It's about being open to the power of emotions that can overtake us when reason is our ally. And then we resort to exclusion. We feel deeply and abandon our good sense. Or we command reason 
and deny our emotions. But what we learn in these experiments is that there is no immunity. There's no amnesty from feelings. There is no good reason to abandon reason. We are not in command or control of this world because none of us are exceptions to a shared humanity. In the face of a world where the turmoil just won't cease, let's add to this method of vairagya some simple practices. Let's remember, too, in early yoga, even in Patanjali's yoga, he defines it as vairagya and abhyasa. Abhyasa is usually translated practice, but its more subtle meanings can help us. Practice tells us, of course, that we are still learning and that the beginner's mind is ever our ally. But abhyasa also means, in Sanskrit, reaching towards, reaching out. It means coming near and bringing into proximity. It means that there is a prospect, sometimes a consequence. Abhyasa refers to disciplines and habits and customs and repetitions, and most importantly, to recursion, that is, the power to repeat the instruction. So abhyasa means adding on to something. It means abiding in an attitude of growth and affirmation. Abhyasa is looking for the auspicious rather than in the unpromising by doing that thing you do again. So let's outline together six abhyasas, perhaps as approaches to learning, as dispositions rather than final goals, especially when we don't know what that might be. We're never less vulnerable, but we can create better strategies for anti-fragility. First, we got to show up to care, and that means care enough to show up. There's nothing like a human presence to make us feel more human. Show up for yourself. Show up for the world. We can be estranged from that human feeling because trauma and the mind and the machinations of the world can do that to us. We forget that we need to be reminded that a human presence will shift and invite and alter experience. Two, Take freedom to heart. Commit to your inner freedom, not to be freed from the world, but to be free to engage with freedom as a power, as a feature, as an inalienable right, as a fact of human experience. Freedom doesn't relieve us of our conditions, our terms, our limitations. Freedom invites us to participate in those facts, in the conversations of desire. We need to be free to breathe to speak, free to care, free to vote, free to be free. Such a freedom invites participation. It invests in engagement. It offers up accountability. Freedom doesn't come from individualized desire, but from the shared desire to be human. Cherish freedom if you have a share. Share what you have. Help others realize that taking freedom to heart is respecting another's desire for freedom. Our third abhyasa. Create a voice, a voice for yourself so that you might share that more efficaciously with others. 
Write, draw, play music, dance, but do something that isn't transactional, but instead makes an offering of yourself. Articulate a hope, a vision that gives you room to change. In these very troubled times, don't turn away. Find a moment and turn towards and put into motion every form and feeling. Everything's not a deal. Some things are grace. Make yourself that agent of grace. Four, keep open as far as possible lines of communication. We don't have to be in agreement. We don't have to like the other's point of view. But whenever possible, find a way to communicate, to listen, to offer. Five, embrace how complexity won't recede or reduce or resolve to simpler terms. While we can remove the extraneous and step into fewer unnecessary variables, Occam's razor doesn't promise a simpler world, only that we come to understand we might need well all we need to understand. Complexity is often uncomfortable, overwhelming, but reception is always more valuable than reduction. We're going to have to live in a complex world. Denying it won't help. And our sixth abhyasa. It can appear we live in opposing worlds, worlds so different that the juxtaposing narratives seem impossible or irreconcilable. If you find your own story giving in to the dystopic, the cynical, where your partisan preferences are so colored and unsympathetic as to be saturated, it's time to reverse such jaundice. To become as grudging and as unindifferent as the nihilist is to give in to the forces of the shadow's worst temptations. It's a slippery slope to an insolvent self, to a life more resentful than grateful. So make gratitude Rule zero. If the Buddhists are right to remind us that the first noble truth is that our human condition goes amiss, awry, that we suffer, that the sky brings bad weather, dukkha, then make a rule zero and let that foundation, that rule zero, be gratitude. You're alive. You've beaten insurmountable stochastic odds. You've arrived in this embodied consciousness as a living miracle of being. And while we all must deal, give and take, demand and receive, because we do so, life is still a gift, not just a deal. Rule zero, gratitude is heaven itself, as Blake said, and that heaven isn't elsewhere. It's not a utopia unrealized or a refuge of the afterlife. That heaven is present here because it's the reason you and I are here. There is grace. We were lucky enough to get some. And to offer it to others, we have to acknowledge it in ourselves. If we are privileged enough to consider that this life was given, then we can make even the simplest or the coarsest transaction from that place of gratitude. We're not really here all that long, but we don't have to live in narratives of dystopia in which everything is wrong or going wrong. 
for all the trouble and pain and confusion this world is bringing, challenging us every day to keep our heads above water. We can choose to be responsive rather than grumbling, heedful rather than heedless, inviting rather than merely demanding. We not only become the company we keep, we become the story that we decide to tell. Tell a story without dissimulating truths, but one that finds it better to actualize this commission of grace. Find that story inside. That's the last of our six points. Rule zero, start with gratitude. When things feel like we are being reduced to survival, that every election is an existential choice and the fate of democracy is on the line, when every day is about being put to the test and the limit of our exertions, what we need then is a bit more room, room to breathe, a space to inhabit. We need to rededicate to abundance, an abundance that doesn't pilfer or abuse the transactional world, but engages that experience of grace, Rule zero. If we start there, then there's a further possibility, and we'll continue to learn how to learn. If we do that, we will share the human dilemma. There is no promise of happiness or contentment in this life. There is an opportunity to learn, to grow, to become those offerings of grace. We can make the promise to live with grace as first category, recognizing the miracle of this human birth, that human consciousness, this strange blessing, is ours. We are vulnerable beings, and the world may be capricious in its dealings, but when we decide we will not be brittle or flimsy or indifferent, then our practice, our anti-fragility, makes our vulnerability and our humility our truest assets. Take care, Rajanika. May the light of Deepavali illumine your heart. Be a lamp to this world. I hope this conversation has been worth your time as it has been for me. And I hope you know how much I respect the gift that is you. Let's talk soon. Take care. Happy Deepavali.